A quick reminder before we get started. The Rational Apprentice podcast is linear rather than topical. This means that the podcast should be listened to in order, starting with episode one. This also means that skipping episodes or listening out of order will prevent you from fully understanding the concepts being presented and may cause you to miss or misconstrue vital proofs. That being said, welcome to the Rational Apprentice podcast. What method do you use to decide whether a person's actions or ideas are right actions or ideas or wrong actions or ideas? And do you think that your method of distinguishing right from wrong is the same method used by, say, the other members of your family or your teacher or professor or your elected political representative? And if they're not the same, how do you know that your method is the right method and that theirs is the wrong one. Now, I guess the simplest way to ask the question is, which method of determining what is right is right? Now, I've given you Professor Golombus's definition of property, but how many different definitions of property do you think it would be possible to come up with? 200? Sure. 1,000? Sure. 10,000? A million? Well, sure. Given infinite time, it becomes possible to define the word property or theft or slavery or any other term in infinite ways, and none of them would be the same. So if we can come up with infinite definitions for property or any other term, how do we know that the one I gave you, Professor Columbus's definition, is the right definition? Now, I've shown you the chart of relative progress between the three generalized branches of science. On the left, we have the natural sciences, the study of inanimate matter. In the center is medical science, the study of animate matter. And on the right are the social so-called sciences, man's choices, actions, and interactions with relation to his fellow man. Now, utilizing this chart, I illustrated the point that it's the disparity in progress between the natural sciences and the social so-called sciences that creates the crisis that we find ourselves in. Essentially, we've progressed so far in the physical sciences that we have the ability to completely wipe ourselves out. Yet we're so primitive in our social technology as to be completely unable to prevent ourselves from doing so. And hence, the crisis. But before we can close the gap that exists between these two branches of study by raising our social technology and thus alleviating the crisis, there is a preliminary and vital thing that we must do first in order to achieve progress. And considering what we constantly discuss at The Rational Apprentice, what do you think that could be? Hey, I'm Scotty, and welcome to the Rational Apprentice Podcast, where we discuss solutions to humanity's problems derived from the application of the scientific method. We also discuss and practice things like logic and logical argumentation, reasoning and evidence, the unknown, forgotten, or underappreciated scientists and philosophers in our history, and of course, the mind of a murder case of the week. Our topic today is the foundations of rightness. Let me say that I am fully aware that what we're discussing over the next few episodes will involve some science and may be a little difficult to grasp. But I ask you to stick with me here because once we get through these essential foundations, 
it gets much easier. We will go over these concepts enough such that even if science isn't your best subject, you will understand and be able to build upon them. Now, as Galambos himself put it, this is actually poor salesmanship, but proper education, namely to put the difficult thing at the beginning. The theory comes before the application, and that's always unpleasant, but that bitter pill has to be swallowed. And to illustrate the point, Galambos often told the story about the ancient monarch who wanted to study geometry under Euclid, but found it rough going because of all the theorems. Finally, his majesty said to Euclid, listen, never mind all the details, let's cut to the chase, in obviously ancient king speak. Which is essentially like saying, hey, I'm not interested in the proofs, pal, give me the conclusions. Whereupon Euclid uttered his classic remark, your majesty, there is no royal road to geometry. And likewise, there is no royal road to freedom. If there were, and I wish there were, because then we wouldn't be here. This crisis wouldn't exist, because all of this would have been figured out long ago. But let's continue. Before we can implement any methodological remedy to a problem, any problem, it is first and always necessary to correctly identify, or diagnose if you prefer that, with precision, what it is that caused the problem to begin with. In our case, we're looking for the cause of the disparity in progress between the natural sciences, physics, and the social sciences. So, what advantage do we have in the physical sciences that we, quite obviously, do not have in the social so-called sciences? Well, over a period of several hundred years or so, something fantastic was developed in the physical sciences that made it possible to distinguish between two vital yet opposite things, right and wrong. This method of distinguishing right from wrong in physics has allowed us to determine with a high degree of precision whether hypotheses accurately and empirically reflect reality and natural principles, or whether they don't. In other words, this method allows us to determine which hypotheses are right and which are wrong. And this, as Galambos called it, this criterion of rightness, launched the physical sciences far ahead of our social capabilities in only a few centuries. So, what is it about this criterion of rightness that is different from the myriad criteria we use in societal studies? To put it simpler, how is it different from how we distinguish right from wrong in our daily lives? Well, the criterion of rightness used in the physical sciences is what we call an absolute standard of rightness, whereas the standard of rightness used in the social so-called sciences has always been a relative standard of rightness. All right, so let's explore what I mean when I say relative standard of rightness so that you can form a clear distinction between these disparate methods. Now, the term relative, put simply, means with respect to the observer. So when we consider or judge the rightness of someone's actions or the rightness of someone's beliefs, we can get a very different outcome depending on things such as 
time, ethnicity, religion, country of origin, race, circumstance, sex, and on and on. For example, there may be one standard of rightness today that's different from, say, what it was 5, 10, 100, 1,000 years ago. There may be one standard of rightness for someone from the West and a different one for someone from the East. One standard of rightness for a Muslim and another for a Hindu or a Christian. One standard of rightness for a man and another for a woman. One standard of rightness for a child and another for an adult. One standard of rightness for the rich and another for, well, everyone else. I think you get the point I'm making. In fact, historically, when dealing with the idea of rightness with regard to human action, volition, most, and this is prevalent today, especially in academia and politics, most will state with confidence that everything is relative and there are no absolutes. Who am I to say whether that's right or wrong, moral or immoral? After all, it depends on where the person lives, when they lived, what religion they follow, whether they're a man or a woman, a child or an adult, black or white, or frankly, any other non-essential qualifier that you can think up. Here's one that's become very popular in the past 10 years or so. I have my truth. In other words, they say, morality, rightness, truth. These are all relative concepts. But are they relative concepts? Is it even possible to have an absolutely right action at all? For physics or any other field of study? Or is everything, as they claim, completely relative? And if it is possible to have an absolutely right action in physics, can that absolute standard of rightness be successfully applied to determine rightness and wrongness with regard to individual volitional action. Is it possible to develop, I'm quoting Snelson here, is it possible to develop a standard of rightness that can determine what is right or who is right on any subject at any time? If we could come up with something like this, we would then have the ability to determine who was right, say, in any dispute over property, without resorting to coercion, theft, or violence. We could determine what is a right action by any government in the world. We would know when our children were right, or our teachers and professors. Would you consider that a fairly valuable tool? Because I certainly would. Now, in the next episode of the Rational Apprentice podcast, we are going to begin discussing, first, what it means to be right. You can't determine if something is right unless you know what right is. And then we're going to discuss what the term absolute means so that we can differentiate it from the term relative. All right, Mind Over Murder is next up. Okay, we have two Mind Over Murder cases this week, as we will for the rest of the summer, and both are clue-by-clues. One is for you adults, and the other for the kids, as part of the Mind Over Murder Kids Summer Series. Now, first up is this week's caper for the adults, entitled The Suspicious Suicide. Now, this one requires a little understanding of the burden of proof required to bring a case to trial. In a case such as this, where there's witness testimony, and there's certainly a lot of it in our story, 
we must take care to categorize the testimony into direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Now, direct evidence is evidence that directly proves or disproves a fact. If the direct evidence is true, then the fact must be true. But we must always be careful to identify exactly what the direct evidence is proving or disproving. Now, we'll see examples of this as we go through the clues. Now, circumstantial evidence, or often called indirect evidence, is evidence that relies on inference to establish a fact. It doesn't point directly to a fact. And we'll see a prime example of circumstantial evidence in the very first clue. The police found a gun in Benjamin's hand with only his fingerprints on it. Okay, this clue contains a bit of both direct and indirect. A gun is found at the scene. That's direct evidence, but what fact is it proving? Well, does it prove that it was the gun that Benjamin was shot with? Well, no. Forensic evidence will be needed to prove that. And does the fact that the gun has only Benjamin's fingerprints on it prove anything? Well, it could be used to infer that Benjamin was the only one to have held the firearm and thus the death was a suicide. But then does it prove that? No. If we assume that the gun was Benjamin's, there's no way to know when he touched the gun. It could be that he touched the gun weeks before. It could also be that the killer wiped the gun clean and placed the gun in Benjamin's hand, making it look as though it was a suicide. Okay, so, so far, the most we have is the direct physical evidence that a gun exists and was in the room and fingerprints exist and were on the gun. We would need more evidence to be able to use these pieces to prove anything solid. All right, so let's move on. Benjamin was in danger of being sued over problems with his business. He called his lawyer to find out how serious the situation was. Okay, again, we have a combination of evidence types here. Benjamin being sued, well, we can take that as a fact. Uh, were this a real case and not an exercise, we would usually need the plaintiff to attest to the fact or some corroborating documents or audio or videotapes proving that some external person, agency, or company was threatening him with suit. Now, if the lawyer is backing this up, that may be something, but it would also be a Benjamin told me that kind of situation, which does not prove that Benjamin was being accurate. It merely proves that he thought he would be sued, or sure, I guess he could have been lying to the lawyer, but that wouldn't have made much sense. So I think we can take this entire clue as just fact. But a fact inferring what? Well, motive for suicide? Possibly. Motive for murder? Possibly. By itself, it could be used for both, couldn't it? All right, next one. According to his lawyer, Benjamin would probably have been forced to go out of business, which would have left him bankrupt. Okay, again, we have a clue which if everything is true, proves nothing, but could be used to give weight to an argument of motive for suicide. In my mind, it actually weakens the motive for murder because if someone were going to win a lawsuit and receive enough compensation as to bankrupt Benjamin, it doesn't really follow that the would-be plaintiff would choose to murder the defendant. 
Again, what we have here is something that we simply have to take as fact and allow it to infer motive for suicide. And you, you'll have to assign the weight you want to give it by yourself. But it proves nothing directly. All right, next one. His lawyer said that as they were talking, Benjamin dropped the phone and said, please don't do this, just before the lawyer heard a gunshot. Okay, interesting. One of the types of direct evidence is direct eyewitness testimony. But does this qualify? I mean, first, the lawyer is less of a direct eyewitness and more of a remote ear witness. And second, because the lawyer cannot see what is in the room and there's no video evidence to corroborate his statement, this one's difficult. In the backstory, it said that the lawyer heard Benjamin talking to someone in the room. This clue then furthers that with a specific statement uttered by the deceased. But does it prove anything? No. But could it carry a lot of weight with a jury or a judge? Yeah, it could. Even if there was, say, a defense lawyer arguing that Benjamin was watching TV, and that's what the lawyer overheard. Mixing that with the sound of the phone falling, which we all know what that sounds like. It's kind of specific, right? And the fact that there was a shot-like sound coming from the room in which a man was then found shot. I think this piece, though inconclusive, can carry a lot of weight. All right, next one. The Florida-based lawyer hung up the phone and called the police, but it took him a few minutes to find the number for the New York police. Hmm, okay, so what can we do with this? Well, it eliminates the lawyer from the lineup. I mean, he's in Florida. He's too far away. Other than that, it would give an explanation of some time delay in his contacting the police, if indeed there was a time delay. There's no other evidence in the story that mentioned that there was a delay in his calling. And the only other point that I could make here kind of breaks the fourth wall. Perhaps the author, I think it's the fourth wall, is it the fifth wall, third wall? I don't know. It breaks a wall. Perhaps the author of this little scene felt it was necessary to insert some time to allow for the assistant to arrive and come in, which is our next clue. Before the police could arrive, Benjamin's assistant arrived and entered the office. It was he who found him dead. Here we have another example of factual evidence that's not corroborated with video or time evidence. So we're just going to have to take it as rope. Okay. The police can attest to whether the assistant was in the office prior to their arrival, which should be enough to prove or disprove this clue. But that's, you know, as to whether it was, in fact, the assistant that found the body, well, as no one else is mentioned in the story or the clues, I think we have to take that as a fact as well. But what does this clue do for us? Does it prove anything either way? Well, really, I don't see how it could as the clue would be exactly the same for a murder or a suicide. All right, next. The assistant stated that other than the body and the gun, there was nothing whatsoever out of place in the room. Okay, so what we have here, what I could argue, could be an expert witness on the layout and contents of the room. Unless it could be proven that the assistant was new and therefore unfamiliar with the room, I think that expert witness is a reasonable assumption. 
Now, being an expert on the layout and contents of the room, what can we conclude from the statement? Well, let's see. Apparently, dead bodies are a rarity when it comes to this office. In my office, they're lying around everywhere, but in this office, apparently, dead bodies are unusual. And the same could be said about the gun. But if we combine this observation with the first clue, it could be used to dismiss my observation that the gun could have been held by Benjamin at any time. It doesn't rule it out. It only tends to dismiss it as the gun could have been held by Benjamin at some other location. Or this could have been the first time he brought the gun to work. There are a number of possible explanations, each one equally a stretch. And finally, we have the assistant said that upon seeing the body, he immediately called police using the office phone. Okay, assuming the time is corroborated by the police, this one could easily be put in the same bucket as number six. The same observations could be made. The only difference here is a tiny fact that could lead to the evidence that we're actually looking for. The assistant called the police using the office phone. Now, if we assume that the statement is truthful, which we can, we can then look back at clue number seven. What, in combination with the fact that the assistant used the office phone to call the police, would be considered noteworthy? Well, if, as it states in number seven, everything in the office was in its regular place, and, as it states in number eight, the assist used the phone in the office, it follows then that the phone was not out of place when the assistant used it to call. But looking back at number four, we have the testimony of the lawyer who heard the phone drop before the shot. Now, if all of these things are true, we have to conclude one of three things. One, the lawyer lied about being on the phone and hearing it drop. Two, the assistant lied or misremembered about everything being in its normal spot. Or three, both the lawyer and the assistant told the truth and somehow the phone was placed back on the hook before the assistant arrived on the scene. Which, to my mind, is suspicious enough to warrant further investigation of a possible murder scene. After all, dead bodies really don't replace phone receivers and dying men do have more pressing matters to attend to. All right? Now, there could be other possibilities, sure, but that's the one that we came up with. If you found something else or you find my reasoning to be flawed, I'd love to hear about it in the comments or send me a message. But now it's time for the Mind Over Murder Kids case of the week entitled The Winged Robber or Winged if you want to be all fancy. All right, let's read. Joanna Lee, an airline pilot, left her hotel room in the middle of the night on her way to the airport. But as soon as she exited the hotel building, she was robbed and the thief took all her money. She went to the nearest police station to file a report, but she couldn't describe the thief as it was dark and he had been wearing a mask. Nonetheless, the police found two suspects in the area. Who done diddly did it? Okay, so just from the story, what do we know about the scene? What are we picturing in our heads? Well, it's late, right? It's the middle of the night. So it's dark. And on the street in front of the building, the hotel building, the hotel lights are probably glowing and creating odd shadows on the scene. Okay, so what do we know about Joanna Lee? Well, Joanna is a girl's name. 
Doesn't have to be, but it usually is, and the story refers to her as her. So I think we can conclude that Joanna is a woman. Okay, what's her job? She's a pilot, right? She's on her way to the airport to work. So she's probably out there on the street wearing what? A pilot's uniform. Now, can you picture that? Now, there's one other person involved here, right? The robber. From the story, do we have any indicator as to what he was wearing? Well, no, not really, right? There's no description of his clothes other than what? The mask, right? Now, what else do we know about the robber? Man or woman? Well, the story refers to the robber as he. He was wearing a mask. So I guess we're looking for a male suspect here. All right, let's move on to the clues. All right, number one. Captain Lee told police the robber was visibly upset when he found that she only had $20 on her. So what is visibly upset? Well, you can see it in his face, something like that, right? She was able to tell without him telling her that he was upset by the look in her, in, on his face. Okay, what else have we learned from this? Now, I can see two things. One, you may already know. First, this clue confirms to us that a pilot is also called a captain, right? Now, what other professions can people do to earn the rank of captain? Well, there are two easy ones that I can think of right now. What about a ship's captain? Or, if you're in the military, a military captain. All right, what else are we told here? How much money was stolen? $20, right? Now, that's not a huge amount of money. Well, that's my subjective opinion. But as there is such a thing as a $20 bill, that $20 could be just one bill, which can be easily hidden, right? It's not like $1,000, which would take up a lot more space. But other than the fact that we now know how much money was stolen from Miss Lee, how do we know that? Now, if you remember from the story, Captain Lee said that the robber took all her money. And now we're hearing that she only had $20 on her when she was robbed. Now, how much is all of $20? $20, absolutely. All right, let's go on to clue number two. The police asked suspect number one if he had robbed anyone tonight. To which he answered, no, of course not. Search me if you want to. I don't have any money on me, so how could I have taken the money from anyone? Well, that does it. He's innocent. I mean, if suspect number one doesn't have the money on him, he couldn't have done it, could he? Or could he? Suspect number one is is being rather clever here and hoping that we don't see that he's using a logical fallacy here called excluded middle. He's hoping that you will agree that if he has the money, he's guilty. But if he doesn't have the money, he's innocent. But are there more than just those two possibilities? What do we do 
with money? Well, sometimes we save it for later, don't we? Now, if we save it, it could be that we save it in our pocket. But as our suspect doesn't have any money on him, he apparently didn't do that. But he could have saved it somewhere else, too. What about a bank? He could have put the money in the bank or somewhere else before being questioned, couldn't he? He could have hid it anywhere or given it to someone else. Now, what else do we do with money? Well, most times we trade it for something that we want more than the money, which is a very economics way of saying we spend it. So maybe suspect one spent the money already. And instead of cash, we should be checking his pockets for candy bars or ice cream. Does he have ice cream all over his face? Or maybe he bought a book, The History of Broccoli Farming in America. Now, I read that one last year and I couldn't put it down. All right, so what can we say about clue two? Does it prove that suspect one didn't rob Miss Lee? No. And does it prove that suspect one did rob Miss Lee? No. So does clue number two do anything for us at all? <laughs> no. <laughs> so let's move on to clue number three. Now, suspect two was asked, did you see Captain Lee tonight? To which he responded, no, I don't know anything about an airline pilot. I didn't see her. Now, I see some problems here. Do you? Let me give you an example similar to this one. If I asked you, did you see Mrs. Jones, a person you've never seen? What is the one thing that you know about this person just from the question, did you see Mrs. Jones? Well, what does the Mrs. tell you about this Jones person? It tells you that Mrs. Jones is a woman, right? And not only that, but Mrs. Jones is married too. If she wasn't married, we would refer to her as Miss Jones. But when the police asked suspect too if he had seen Captain Lee, is there anything about the rank of captain that says that this Lee person is a woman or a man? No. Women can be captains and men can be captains. But suspect two said that he didn't see her. How did he know that Captain Lee was a woman if he had never seen her before? It's kind of suspicious, right? Now, what else could be a problem? with how suspect two answered. Now remember what we talked about. Is a pilot the only job that has the rank of captain? No, there are ship captains and there are military captains too, right? So how did suspect two know that she was a pilot? Remember he said, no, I don't know anything about an airline pilot. So how did suspect two know that she was a pilot and not one of the other types of captain? Well, I think we have our robber here, but there is one more clue. Let's do that one before making our final conclusion. The robber pulled the gold pilot wings off her uniform before running away. However, it was not really made of gold. Well, this one's kind of weird. What does this do for us? It's odd 
that Captain Lee didn't say anything about the wings being torn from her uniform. But then, now, have you seen those wings that pilots, co-pilots, navigators, flight staff, they wear them on their uniform. They're not all that large. Maybe she didn't notice. But if the robber took the wings with him and if he examined them enough to check to see if it was real gold, that would definitely indicate that the robber would absolutely know that Captain Lee was a pilot, wouldn't it? That makes me doubly sure that Suspect 2 is our robber. Now, what do you think? You think we got it? I sure do. Everybody, that will do it for today. That reminds you that in order to get the weekly Mind Over Murder case notes, you'll need to go on over to the website and sign up for the weekly newsletter. And don't forget that all summer long, we're adding a second Mind Over Murder puzzle for the kids as a part of our Mind Over Murder summer series. Now, in addition to the Mind Over Murder case notes, we'll have studies, practices, courses, and bonus materials coming in the near future. So head on over to therationalapprentice.com slash subscribe to sign up for free right now. All right, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time.